Hello and welcome to Socialism, the Marxist podcast from the Socialist Party. What are the 2011 Arab Springs lessons for now? Ten years ago, revolutions erupted in Egypt and Tunisia and rapidly spread through the Middle East and North Africa. Workers and poor people, enraged by their living conditions, toppled dictators. Across the world, capitalist governments were taken by surprise. How did Marxists in the Committee for Workers International foresee that uprisings were coming? What was the outcome of the Arab Spring movements? Why did some go further than others? And why have none achieved the full aims of protesters? What is the significance of revolutions in the region since? And what is needed for new upheavals which are already brewing to finish the job? This episode of Socialism looks at the 10th anniversary of the Arab Spring. Lessons for today. Ten years ago, following the financial crisis, there was a wave of revolutionary upheavals in the Middle East and North Africa, now known as the Arab Spring. And to discuss the revolutionary significance on the anniversary of these momentous events, we have with us today Judy Beeson from the Committee for Workers International. Hello, Judy. Hello, James. So the Arab Spring revolutions 10 years ago, these were massive events. There were a boiling over of rage in mass uprisings. But the results were quite mixed, weren't they? Yes, they were in the end, definitely. The year itself, 2011, 10 years ago, began with really great protests, mass protests, which spread across the Middle East and North Africa, which absolutely terrified the region's many autocratic regimes. But on the other hand, there was huge admiration from working people the world over at seeing the dictators Ben Ali and Mubarak, uh, Ben Ali in Tunisia and Mubarak in Egypt, who had both been in power for decades, being swept out of power by the magnificent movements that took place in those countries. They were really titanic events which showed that when the majority in society rise up and fight back together, then no amount of state force is going to hold them back. Mm. And it also was enormously infectious across the region with uprisings, mass uprisings in Bahrain, in Yemen, in Libya, and in Syria as well. And as you said, it was mixed results because in Bahrain, the regime survived with the ruling elite being very much assisted in that by military force going in from Saudi Arabia and the other Gulf regimes. In Yemen and Libya, the autocrats were eventually removed, in fact, but those events went along with a descent into civil war in those countries. And in Syria, well, it's well known that a terrible war developed, but there was initially a heroic attempt by ordinary people to rise up against Assad's repressive regime. But Assad's state forces and intervening regional and world powers reacted to create a very bloody civil war to try to cling onto power that Assad regime at massive expense in terms of loss of life, millions of displaced people and enormous destruction of homes and infrastructure. And really the tragedy was that the opposition movement at that time 
The opposition movements, in fact, across the region had only just emerged from decades of heavy repression and at the same time faced a mammoth task. And this was with no genuine trade unions or other workers' organisations in existence in most of those countries. There were exceptions, particularly in Tunisia, where there was a trade union movement that was under separate management to the regime that was semi-independent of it. So these revolutionary uprisings weren't foreseen by capitalist governments really anywhere in the world. But the Socialist Party and the Committee for a Workers International, which is the world organisation that the Socialist Party in England and Wales is affiliated to, they had said that upheavals were coming. So what was it that was underneath that prediction we made? Yes, the dictators Ben Ali, Mubarak, we could add Gaddafi in Libya, they had all appeared firmly entrenched, imposing their authoritarian, repressive regimes with you know, what seemed to be strong military and police apparatuses. And yes, it's true that in the CWI, we could see those revolutions coming. And we said that in our material at the time, because the conditions for ordinary people across the region were so terrible. The initial trigger came, in fact, at the end of 2010, with the tragedy of a Tunisian fruit seller setting himself alight in protest at what was a daily struggle for a living income and against the police harassment, the police abuse, in fact, that he was suffering at that time. Mm. And then there followed an immense eruption of anger of working people, of the poor, against poverty, against inequality, against corruption, against the repression... And, you know, we could add the humiliation of day-to-day life. You know, they were wanting dignity in their lives as well. And in particular, it was high unemployment, low wages, and the escalating costs of food and other basic goods that fueled the discontent across the region. Miseries that were really universal, we can say. And the protesters wanted to end all of that, so they were struggling for basic necessities in reality. But in Tunisia and Egypt, and you mentioned Tunisia as being the country with the largest, best organised working class of those countries involved in the Arab Spring, Tunisia and Egypt are kind of standard bearers of the Arab Spring. Those movements were able to go the furthest, but the aims of the protesters still haven't been met, have they? That's right. And that's because neither of those revolutions went so far as to end the nightmare of capitalism, to put it bluntly, to stop replacement capitalist regimes from taking power at the top. So capitalism remained and does so today with all of its inability to deliver decent living conditions. In Egypt, we saw that the general election that took place in 2012 after, of course, the revolution. In that election, there wasn't a workers' party in existence to offer an alternative. And so a substantial layer of the voters turned to the Muslim Brotherhood at that time. And the Brotherhood formed a capitalist government under President Morsi that was never going to be able to satisfy the demands of the revolution. And then after just a year, there were big demonstrations during that time. It was removed in a military coup. The military took advantage of the situation. And that paved the way for today's military-led authoritarian regime, which is headed by al-Sisi. And this regime, it's only delivered, in fact, a worse situation for working class and middle class people, the overwhelming majority in society, than even existed under Mubarak, mm. because it's based on decaying capitalism. Mm-hmm. 
And there was recently a Guardian YouGov poll. It was done amongst Egyptians and it came up with the result that less than a quarter of Egyptians said that their lives are actually better now than 10 years ago. And because of that, (laughs) we can see that al-Sisi really does live in fear of the next revolution. Mm. He stepped up imprisonments, he stepped up killings of people opposing the regime, in fact. And in Tunisia too, life for most people has not improved over the last 10 years. We see in the media that they paint the country as having had a fairly successful transition from dictatorship to democracy. But like in Egypt, the hopes for fundamental change that drove that uprising... 10 years ago, have been destroyed by the abject failure of the capitalist government since then. And there have been numerous governments, (laughs) numerous lineups of government in Tunisia. The failure of them to solve any of the acute problems of poverty, of corruption. In Tunisia, the regional disparities that exist and are very sharp. And also there have been numerous terrorist atrocities in Tunisia. These, of course, all add to the many sufferings that have been endured by the working people there. Unemployment is now at a higher rate in that country compared to 2010-11. And that's now enormously worsened by the COVID pandemic. Of course, the pandemic has enormously worsened the situation across the whole region. And we can also say in Tunisia, regarding this idea that it's a successful democracy, that the limited freedoms that were won in the 2011 revolution or through that revolution are being eroded, have been eroded since then. And it's no surprise really that angry protests have resumed in that country. In fact, they're raging across that country as we speak this week and are being met with more police brutality, arbitrary arrests. You know, that is happening at the present time in Tunisia. But I'll just add before I stop on this question that it is not surprising that there are mixed moods. That on the one hand, we see this return to struggle Mm. by a layer, but others are in utter despair and wondering whether you can get stability and democracy, whether the two things and rising living standards, whether it can all go together, whether they're compatible. And this is being reflected in increased support for a party that is actually led by a supporter of the former dictator Ben Ali's regime, a party that, well, translates as being the free constitutional party, uh, roughly, (laughs) in English. So I think people will ask, what went wrong? These were such magnificent movements, such bravery, huge scale. Why couldn't the mass pressure they brought to bear achieve real and lasting change? Well, clearly, mass movements weren't enough. And the CWI was saying that at the time. When Mubarak fell from power, we had members of our international out on the streets of Cairo, in fact, with an Arabic language leaflet that was putting forward some of the important steps that were necessary to consolidate a victory for the revolution. And one important demand in that leaflet was that there should be no trust in the military chiefs and no participation in any government, along with leaders or officials of the former dictatorship, the Mubarak dictatorship. And these were really key issues, as the military leaders at that time were quickly moving to occupy the power vacuum and were giving false assurances to the protesters that they would oversee the desired fundamental change, which in reality was not going to happen. But, you know, those were the illusions they were trying to create at the time. Mm. History has shown that no capitalist class 
whether its type of government and state rule is brutal or more benign, will simply hand power over to the majority in society when faced with revolts. And we were saying at the time, and we're now saying now, that concrete steps were needed to remove all remnants of the old regime. And without those kind of steps, then capitalist rule would inevitably continue, as it has done in Egypt and in Tunisia, with just these changes of government and personnel we've seen being implemented at the top. And we were saying then, and say now, that workers' organisations need to be built in those countries that act in a completely independent way to the pro-capitalist parties and that can adopt programmes to really change society that have the aim of removing capitalism as the basis, the whole fibre of those organisations that have in their programmes turning the protest movements towards the goal of setting up democratic and revolutionary constituent assemblies where workers' representatives can come together with representatives from rural areas of small farmers, of the ranks of young people, from the poor layers of society, that they can come together to agree a programme for the transformation of society on a socialist basis. And that would mean a programme of taking the main companies, the land, the main natural resources into public ownership and of introducing socialist economic planning which must be democratically decided, socialist planning that can organise the resources of society to meet the needs of everybody. Now, the period since 2011 has also encompassed new protests and movements, revolutionary movements, no less, in the region. How significant have these been? Well, very. There was, in particular, a tremendous revolutionary movement in Sudan in 2018 into 19, which led to the removal of the president al-Bashir. Nine days, in fact, just before he fell, President Bouteflika in Algeria was forced out of office because of a protest movement sweeping across that country. But we've seen others as well. We've seen in Lebanon in 2019, there was a massive eruption of discontent, large-scale protests, which have been ongoing there ever since that year, in fact. And the anger increased following the corruption and failings surrounding the terrible explosion in Beirut's port last August, which shocked the world, those events. In Iran, there has been, well, if you look back to 2018, there was a wave of mainly working class revolt then, very significant again. And more struggles have taken place in that country since, including, in fact, in recent weeks. And then in addition to all of those movements, there have been smaller scale movements, but again significant in countries like Iraq, in Jordan, in Morocco. I should add that, of course, because you know we use the word Arab Spring hmm. a fair bit, but it should be borne in mind that it's not every country across the Middle East and North Africa that is majority Arab. You know, obviously, hmm. in particular Iran <laughs> comes to mind, which mm-hmm. is a majority Persian country. Only a very small number percentage of the population is Arab in Iran, and most of the mainly Arab countries do have non-Arab minorities who have also engaged in these struggles, such as the Amazigs, who form part of the population in a number of the countries across North Africa in particular. But what we can definitely say in generalising is that all the uprisings stem from the increasingly intolerable conditions that are endured by the workers and the poor across the entire region from all backgrounds. 
and they are largely very young in age populations as well, youth who face no future prospect of securing a decent living under these conditions of capitalist crisis. And it's economic crisis, it's rising inequality, which I've mentioned, the elites are creaming off much of the wealth. There's been IMF-imposed austerity programmes. There's the effects of climate change, extra heat, less water on an ongoing basis. And now, as I've touched on, the added horror of the lost jobs and lives due to the COVID pandemic. So the conditions for the majority are desperate, and it's clear that rage will continue to spill over into revolts and revolutions. And there have been lessons learned since 2011, mm. with one important one being that it's not enough to just remove a president or a government. And we've seen that in Algeria, in Lebanon, in Iraq, demonstrators, when you look at their slogans, they've called for the whole political elite and the whole political system to be removed. We've seen that idea being thrown out on the demos quite a lot. And there's also been a rejection of sectarian-based divisions. And we saw that particularly in Lebanon, where the movement recoiled, drew back from what has been an entrenched political system of sectarianism, the divide and rule political system. So you've raised the need for capitalism to be removed. You've said that these movements have started to learn some of the lessons, that they need to go further, that what we would say in terms of the content of the programme is that they also need, therefore, to break up the state machine of the capitalists, to remove all these repressive organisations which are turned against them, and to take the capitalists themselves out of power, to take the main levers of the economy from the individual ownership of the super-rich into collective ownership by the population as a whole in order to plan production. That's the content of a socialist revolution. But what are the steps needed towards building organisations that could actually achieve this in the Middle East and North Africa? Yeah, well, this is clearly a very crucial question because, um, I mean, all the uprisings and revolutions across the region over the last decade do show the limits of spontaneous, disorganised movements and show the need for workers to organise and organise well at local level, regional level and national level. But at the same time, there's been suspicion towards the idea of building new parties and organising even because people have seen the political and bureaucratic degeneration of left workers' parties and workers' organisations as well in previous periods. But we do need to really say strongly that workers' organisations and organising is essential. And to build confidence in the building of new workers' organisations, then as well as, you know, I've already mentioned that it's crucial that they maintain complete independence from pro-capitalist parties and institutions, but they need to have very democratic structures so that the membership can control what happens at the top, can control the path and the policies of those organisations. They need to have, therefore, structures that enable discussion and debate at all levels, and that decision-making is made by elected representatives from the rank and file, with the elected leaders being accountable to the rank and file, to those who elect them, and with the ability of 
the rank and file to recall or correct leaderships at any time, you know, immediately, not having to wait, you know, one year, three years or whatever for the next election. But then, you know, you might ask, your next question might be, well, how can these organisations be built? Well, how can these organisations be built? (laughs) (laughs) What's the first stages of it? Yeah. And clearly, I mean, first of all, at workplace and industry level, the building of trade unions is very important. And there have been important developments on that in Egypt, in Iran and other countries of the Middle East and Mm. North Africa. But also, if you look back to what the CWI was raising during the 2011 events, we were, in fact, I'll quote you from the leaflet that we were putting out in Egypt at the time, the leaflet I mentioned earlier. Mm. In that leaflet, we said that there was a need for urgent formation of democratic committees of action in the workplaces and neighbourhoods, particularly in working class and poor neighbourhoods, to coordinate removal of all remnants of the old regime, maintain order and supplies, and most importantly, be the basis for a government of representatives of workers and the poor. So we were really proposing that local committees, local action committees, could be a step, a vital step, you know, for defence of people against the police and military brutality, but for organising locally to assist people with supplies and so on, and that they could then be a step towards creating higher bodies that committees could elect delegates to higher bodies which could come together. And these could be steps towards initiating a new mass workers' party, in fact. And in Egypt, there were local committees of activists being created, in fact. But unfortunately, those developments were outstripped by the determined steps that were being taken by the military leaders and other representatives of capitalism to re-secure their system, to stop a rising challenge to the system that they were trying to prop up. But next time, in future revolutions, then hopefully we'll have seen concrete steps towards building new workers' parties in advance of the revolutionary upheavals. Mm. And once workers have their own party with you know their own aims, their own political representatives and so on, then those parties can set out a programme and a plan of action that can achieve victory in the future upheavals. And an important part of that is how to deal with the capitalist state, military and security forces. If you look at what happened in Egypt in 2011, the army leaders were finding the rank-and-file soldiers to be unreliable for countering the protests Mm. because they come from working-class backgrounds. And therefore, they were sympathetic to the cause to support the movement. So a workers' party could, of course, you know, call on the soldiers not to be used against the protests, as was instinctively being raised in those movements. But they could also, you know, go further than that and call for the formation of democratic rank-and-file committees in the armed forces to help the soldiers in that task of not being used against the revolution. But basically, you know, we can't go into here to all of the programme and policies that would be possible to adopt in that situation. But mass workers' parties would need to arm themselves with revolutionary socialist ideas that would arm them for meeting all the necessary tasks of changing society. Fundamentally, to be able to unify the movements around that common goal of real fundamental change and of providing the means, the meetings and so on, for democratically discussing and mapping out the exact steps that would be needed to get there. So really, you know, to conclude, in that way, the overwhelming majority in society 
would be able to take the steps towards taking matters into their own hands, taking the future into their own hands. Led by the working class, the majority would be able to move to transform society into one that could actually meet people's needs. And I should add the very important issue of saving the environment as well, a very pressing issue in the Middle East as it is in every part of the planet now, in fact. So in other words, it would be possible to enter into the process of bringing about a completely different, almost when you look at the conditions across that region today, an almost undreamable about future, really, that would be a complete departure from the poverty, the war, the terrorism and all the other disasters of capitalism that we see only too clearly across the Middle East and North Africa today. Well, as always, if you like what you've heard, recommend us to your co-workers and friends. Donate to help fund us. And if you agree... Join the socialists. <laughs> thanks very much, Judy. Socialism is produced by the Socialist Party, the England and Wales section of the Committee for a Workers International. Today we heard from Judy Beeshan speaking to James Ivins. And I'm Mark Best. This episode was edited by Nick Hart. You can find further reading in the notes in your podcast app and at socialistparty.org.uk slash podcast. If you want to get in touch, email socialismpodcast at socialistparty.org.uk. Do you agree with the policies and actions the Socialist Party is fighting for? Now is the time. Apply to join at socialistparty.org.uk slash join. If you live outside England and Wales and want to join the fight for socialism in your country, contact the Committee for a Workers International by visiting socialistworld.net. Socialism, the podcast, has no wealthy backers. We rely on funding from the working class, which maintains our political independence. So help us take the fight to the capitalists by making a regular donation or a one-off payment at socialistparty.org.uk slash donate. Until next time, solidarity.